Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, it's me, Sam Kai, and DR, as usual, covering the underreported news of the week. And then I sit down with Ashley Nellis to discuss her work with The Sensing Project. Now, given all of the news around policing that's been uh, at the forefront for the past two, three weeks, people have asked me, how can they get involved? They're like, what can I do? And there is actually something you can do. We do trainings every Tuesday and Thursday around police unions. So as you know, there are 18,000 police departments in the country. And we have been trying to track down the contracts in all of the police departments and then code them. So we're looking for certain things in the contracts. We need more volunteers to help us find the contracts, to help us look through them. There's no skill set necessary as long as you know how to use a computer. Uh, And Google, you are super equipped to do this. And we need you. So if you want to volunteer, you can just email me. It's probably the easiest way to do it. It's deray at deray.com. Super simple. D-E-R-A-Y at D-E-R-A-Y.com. You literally, you can't screw it up. It is actually my email address. It goes to me. You can also text me at 410-204-2013. Again, 410-204-2013. Just say you want to volunteer. We'll get you looped in immediately. We do 30-minute trainings every Tuesday and Thursday. We'll get you plugged in. So if you want to help out, you get to manage your own time. There's, Lord knows, enough work to go around. Join us. Let's go. Family, loved ones, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm D.R. Ballinger. You can find me on the online, Twitter, Instagram, both at D.R. Ballinger. Hey, y'all. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. This is Dre at D.R.Y. on Twitter. Well, we couple things before we jump into it. Um, we want to give a congrats and a shout out to our, our friends at Love It or Leave It. Woo-woo. They're hitting their four year anniversary this four week. Year. So congrats Woo-hoo. to y'all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Love Woo-hoo. it or leave it. Love it or leave it. Amazing. Amazing. And we're, we're also here at Pod Save the People have hit four years. Woo-woo-woo-woo. So Amazing, amazing. So, wow, four years. I remember the first episode four years ago. It was Cory Booker and Andy Slava. Andy has his own podcast now. Andy's doing his own thing. And we had him on the podcast like way before anybody else to talk about the difference between Medicare and Medicaid, which was like the first thing that we, I remember that was like one of the first things. That's when we used to have two guests on every episode, which was oh my gosh. wild. That was a whole, <laughs> what was I doing? What were we doing? But thanks for listening. Four years is <laughs> four years. wow. 400 so years good. of oppression. Right. <laughs> Four years <laughs> Leave of God saving the people. Right, right. Yes, you're a mess. Get out of here. Congratulations. You come a long way, baby. Boom, boom. We did it. Y'all are here. We're here. Oh, yeah. Excited to be here. So let, let's let's continue because we're, I mean, sort of on a, on a high here, I would say, in terms of, you know, Biden had his State of the Union address on Monday. Um, I'm still getting used to what I'm going to call him. President Biden. Uncle Joe, you need to you need to put some respect on it and call him President Biden. <laughs> President Biden, um, I guess you're right, right? I, but then what do we do about Kamala? I, I mean, I got to move from saying Kamala to Vice President Kamala Harris. There are certain times when you want to address her formally and you want to recognize the office that she was elected to, and there are other times when you want to talk about her like your cousin or your sister girl, and so my girl Kiki. Right. (laughs) Speaking of Kiki, she was clean as a whistle at the State of the Union. Her and and Fancy Nancy. So I was very excited to see them both clean. Those ladies were represented. Beautiful pastels. 
um, representing beautifully. Come through spring. Exactly. But, you know, I think it went well. I think it still had a small audience in terms of viewership overall. The AP reported um, that an estimated 26.9 million people watched. The lowest President Barack Obama ever had was 31 million. But I feel like that makes sense. You know, viewership aside, I think in terms of substance and direction, it sounded good. And I feel like I generally good, good feedback. You know, I think one of the things that hit me um, was the, you know, the plan that addresses women and families in particular, um, just trying to get some of those things that the Democrats have been fighting for for quite a while. So whether that's universal paid family leave or for, you know, universal preschool program. Um, We were chatting earlier and Kaya was actually talking about, you know, the proposal is preschool and also bookending that with free um, tuition at community colleges, which I thought was fantastic as well. So, you know, just want to, you know, raise that up and get get y'all's impressions of how the State of the Union went, kind of this first big address. What do y'all think? I need to keep reading up on the infrastructure plan. Obviously, infrastructure is not where my expertise is, but uh, I know that a lot of good things packed in there. And I think Kai, you'll probably talk about some of those, but I did want to just like level set about what he's been doing around or what the administration has been doing around the police is that people do have like this weird idea that the president just has like the power to mandate that all police departments do something. And that's not true. There are 18,000 agencies, as you've heard us say, and the federal government actually, their biggest power is restricting money uh, from cities and states to require them to do things. But the DOJ has done a lot in a short period of time. So remember that the Obama administration opened up 25 investigations of local law enforcement agencies, and they enforced 14 uh, court-approved consent decrees over the span of his time in office, like 25 investigations in two weeks, Garland opened up two, right? So we have Minneapolis police department pattern and practice. They're investigating uh, the Louisiana police department, which is good. Uh, But there's some other things that just like went off the radar is that the DOJ also uh, got a correctional officer to plead guilty to civil rights offenses, As you know, the DOJ can enforce civil rights laws. They got a former South Carolina sheriff and former deputies uh, on a set of charges around conspiracy, misuse of funds, and a a set of other offenses in uh, Chester County, South Carolina. They got a former Louisiana police officer was indicted for assaulting an arrestee in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then in West Virginia, there was an officer who was indicted for a civil rights offense against an arrestee. So I say this because it just isn't, it is atypical for the United States Department of Justice to indict random individual officers around the country. And certainly for the four years of Trump, we saw none of that enforcement happening. Uh, But we actually are starting to see that happen more and more with this DOJ that like the DOJ, Benita just got confirmed. That's a good thing. Lisa Monaco's over there. Garland, they've started off uh, really strong using this lever that historically the federal government has not used all that much. I'm super excited about what I am seeing around education. Um, I think the biggest part of his education proposal is that he's extending the guarantee from a K to 12 education to sort of a pre-K through at least the first two years of community college education. Um, He's expanding uh, or effectively creating a universal pre-K program for three and four-year-olds. And he is proposing to make um, in-state community college, the first two years of community college, uh, free, tuition free for uh, folks. 
And that is huge. It effectively enhances the promise of a free public education to Americans. Um, And so that's super exciting to me. I think uh, we all agree, no matter whether you're rich or poor, that a good start in early childhood education is huge and has tremendous impacts. People who are opposed to the plan say that wealthy people are going to take advantage of it and it's not going to go to the poor people who it's meant to benefit. But in fact, once everybody knows they can get it, usually then you have kind of universal investment. You also are seeing things like an increase in the amount of Pell Grant funds. So there's subsidies for young people who are in other college situations. And there's also a provision that is subsidizing tuition for students from Uh, families earning less than $125,000 at historically black institutions, tribal colleges, and other minority-serving institutions for two years. So there's a comprehensive approach to education in his plan, and I'm excited to see what happens. That on top of CARES Act money to support and sustain education, you know, in response to the pandemic. So um, as an educationista, I'm super excited about this. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So my news this week comes from an article that I found on CNN talking about race correction in medicine. And this was a new idea for me. I think we've talked a lot about health disparities in medicine for people of color, but race correction is the use of a person's race in a scientific equation that can influence how they are treated. So These are mathematical equations that take into account several different variables, including race, and they actually determine what treatment you should get. So these are scientific equations that can calculate, for example, how well your kidneys are working, or whether you should have natural birth after you've had a C-section, or calculates your risk of dying during heart surgery or evaluates brain damage or or measures your lung capacity. And in fact, how I even started thinking about this a little bit is I was watching New Amsterdam, this hospital show on NBC, and there was an African-American woman who was pregnant and she had had a C-section previously and she wanted to have a vaginal birth. And the doctors and the nurses said she couldn't because the, whatever the equation was said that it was not going to be okay. And she said, you do it for white women and I want you to do it for me. And it was this huge moment where all of the protocols and the procedures said that she should not. And there is a doctor who is on his own DEI journey on New Amsterdam. And he said, if we took her race out of this, what would it be? What would be the course of action? And in fact, if they took race out of the mathematical equation, they would have actually suggested that she had a vaginal birth. She insisted on it. And it was a huge moment. And he said, well, then that's what we're going to do because it's the right thing to do. And so this is what we see, in fact, because race isn't biological, race is social. But these are baked into these equations. And you had a number of black medical students who were asking questions about these race correction equations. But then after the George Floyd moment, students started demanding that hospitals make changes. There were online petitions and hospitals actually began to listen. I'll give you one other example of where race correction happens that made a huge impact. So many of us know about the NFL's settlement around concussions, right? The NFL spent $765 million to settle the concussion lawsuit, and that money went to fund medical exams and to compensate players for concussion-related injuries. Well, How do they figure out who had a concussion and and the impact of that concussion? They use these mathematical equations that look at what your cognition was before or was probably before. And the, the actual formula anticipates a lower level of cognition for black people straight out the gate. And so the NFL's algorithms race corrected the neurological exams of black players and made many black players ineligible for the medical exams and the payouts that white players got. 
Um, I think what added insult to injury for me in this, as I was reading the article, is everybody agrees that race isn't an accurate biological measure, but doctors and researchers are still continuing to use these mathematical equations because it's too hard to figure out something else. And that, my friends, is America. This one, so I knew about this virginal, like, it's like vaginal birth after cesarean equation. Um, just because I've been on my own health journey when it comes to my fibroids and my endometriosis and all these things, I mean, fibroids in particular that impact black and brown women the most. They have no idea the why and the what of them. Um, And you have had doctors for a long time, particularly for black and brown women, that when you have fibroids, they want to take your whole uterus and your ovaries out. So when I found out about my fibroids, I very quickly, um, actually a a black woman doctor, um, Dr. Kumari Hobbs, um, who I adore and who is part of my team, Dr. Hobbs found my fibroids and ultimately operated on me. But it was very important for me to find a black doctor. And then when I eventually got diagnosed with endometriosis, again, Dr. Emily Blanton, another sister who is incredible um, and brilliant, who is my endometriosis doctor. Now I have another doctor that's my OBGYN for this baby journey um, who said to me, and and I kind of froze, she was like, you are most likely going to have a C-section. And so I took a breath and I said, well, are you telling me that because, um, and this is a woman of color, but I was like, you know, are you telling me that because that's what gets said to black women? Or are you telling me that just based on my medical history? And she's like, obviously, Daryl, I understand completely where you're coming from, but it's based on your medical history. So all that to say, you know, I, I am privileged enough to have a team of doctors and resource enough to have a team of doctors and have done this research. But I, I will say that each time a diagnosis happened, I had no idea what it meant or, 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 or what I should do. Um, so I can't even imagine for so many women who don't have access, resources and opportunity and space to do research what this journey is like. So all that to say, this article really spoke to me just because it's it's happening to us personally. Like it's one of those things, like many things around racism, but I think the health thing is really life or death. <laughs> you know, all these other factors, you know, obviously are compelling and are impacting our lives, but this one in particular is uh, the most telling and the most scary. And I'll say the other part of this article that uh, had my head spinning was how it, it was some ridiculous percent of doctors, like new doctors or residents who thought black people had thicker skin. And less sensitive nerve endings. So they just don't need to be doctors. Y'all need to go do something else. That's wild. I looked up in the New England Journal of Medicine some examples of the reconsiderations of using race correction. And like you, Kaya, I literally didn't know this was a thing. I was like, this blew my mind. We're gonna actually gonna have an expert on this on the pod soon. Um, to talk about it. So maybe, Kai, we could do that together. But so for cardiology, for instance, there are guidelines called the heart failure risk score, and it predicts the risk of death in patients who are admitted to the hospital. Now, it assigns three additional points to any patient identified as non-black. I love non-black. I love that non-black. But it categorizes all, all black patients as being lower risk. Like that's the that's the rub. Oftentimes when race is a consideration, it's black and everybody else. So it's not even like... Or it's non-black. <laughs> right, right. It's non-black and black. Black, and right, right. that is a whole thing in and of itself. Same thing with urology. There's a stone score that predicts the likelihood of kidney stones in patients who go to the emergency room with like side and back pain. 
The race and origin factor adds three points for a patient identified as non-black. And as a result, that that essentially gives a lower score to black patients. So people might be missing diagnoses, might be missing treatment, all this stuff because of these random scores. And you're like, I didn't I didn't even know that this was like so widespread across all of the different fields. And that has been surprising. So I'm interested to see you know, how the field moves. And like like both of you already said, is I'm sure there's like an old group of doctors who are like, but this is the way we did it. And we've done this for a hundred years. And, and you're like, yeah, but you probably, we probably have like killed people. We probably like let people suffer who didn't know any better, who were like, this is what the hospital said, right? Whereas like the hospital actually could have said something completely different if you hadn't gotten these, if you had gotten three more points added to your score too. All right. So y'all, my news this week comes out of the New York Times it's about Black Pound Day. Um, it's about the British black folks, our, our brothers and sisters across the pond, um, who, you know, I, first of all, I, I love to talk, as a, a black woman entrepreneur, business owner, I love to talk about black business. So here, here I go again. One, I picked this article because it really does highlight some really incredible businesses. One is a children's bookstore owned by um, Amy Fallon. And so part of the, the context of this article is that, you know, obviously, you know, a year ago um, with the, the murder of George Floyd and so many people around the world understanding that racism re- is a real thing. One of the results of that, one of the impacts is that a lot of folks were supporting black businesses with this real rigor, um, real commitment to buying, to, you know, to, to supporting black businesses. So here we are a year later. And that's starting to dwindle off for some folks. And so Black Pound Day for these British folks is a way to kind of keep that going, to remind folks to still support black businesses, um, but also as a way empowering black people um, to spend money, you know, to keep money circulating within black communities. It was thought of um, Black Pound Day by um, a rapper named Swiss. And this is also just, I've, I've found this really spoke to me too. So Swiss was actually a part of the So Solid crew. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the So Solid crew, but I am. I did study abroad in London in 2001, and that's when So Solid crew was basically like junkyard band. They were, what's happening? Anyway, so he is a rapper. He's been around for a while and kind of more rap on the conscious side. He says, you know, he's inspired by, by Tupac and Nas, probably old Nas at this point. Um, but anywho, so... What I found really interesting about this was this really this discussion around, again, kind of the historic inspiration behind Black Pound Day. So the concept is a variation of other efforts to increase wealth among black people by pooling resources. And so we saw that um, with black Americans, um, with black banks that were founded right after the Civil War, you know, black folks weren't allowed to access financial services. And so they created their own banks. Likewise, I did not know this. People who migrated from the Caribbean after World War II to help rebuild Britain and work for its new National Health Service, um, they dealt with discrimination, obviously, but what they did was a form of savings and lending known as partner. Um, So small groups actually still use this apparatus to save today, but I just, I'd like to see just just the examples of of, of how things were done similarly when it comes to um, folks that obviously were descendants of the slave trade and where they ended up and how, how they, how did they ended up functioning? The other thing that I'll say about this article that was interesting in terms of British black folks is their wealth gap is wild. The total wealth for a median household headed by a white British person, including property investments and pension is 300 
and 13,000 pounds, essentially. Um, for a black Caribbean household, it's 85,000 pounds and just 34,000 pounds for a black African household. So just huge variance there that I found interesting. So all that to say, just, you know, wanted to lift up Black Pound Day and these incredible businesses. You guys can check them out in, in the full article, but just wanted to lift them up and, and bring us to the pod. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about this article is that it talked a lot about how Black people in Britain had to support their own financial pursuits because banks wouldn't lend to them. They suffered discrimination. They couldn't get access to capital when they wanted to start businesses. And so they talked about the concept of a partner. And coming from a Caribbean heritage, I know a little something about partners, where effectively you pool your resources. It's it's kind of a Christmas club or a savings club where everybody puts in monthly and each month somebody gets paid out and there's no interest generation. There's no, it's just black people working together to save money. And I know so many people who have bought homes with their partner payout or cars or started businesses or gone on vacations. And to me, I'm, I'm shouting that out. I'm super happy about Black Pound Day and that people are supporting black businesses in the UK. But I'm, I also want to always come back to this heritage of we will figure out how to do it, whether the systems allow us to do it or not. And our liberation is collective. It is tied up in working together. All of this rugged individualism and pull yourself up by your bootstraps is a myth. That's not how we survive as a community. And so I thought it was really interesting that they highlighted this historic strategy for black people to save money. Big up to all of the people in a partner right now. The other thing is like it reminds you of the beautiful power of the internet to help people organize that like you can just people in their homes can say like this is a good idea you find people who believe in that too and then you do it. One of the issues that people have with black businesses is literally just finding them like how do you like you know like you would shop there if you knew it and you know there's some incredible places that don't have big advertising budgets so you don't see them on Instagram or, or like you just didn't stumble across them so the idea that there's like actually a focused way to do this like uh, you created a whole moment around it is actually really powerful it reminds me too of one of the things that is a little different from the 2014 protests in the 2020 is that 2020 I, people walked away and started to put stakes in the ground about like here are some things I can do right like in a way that to me sort of responded to this idea of like people feeling overwhelmed before they were like, okay, I can do this thing and I'm going to do this thing. And you're like, dope, go do that thing. What I will say, and we have not, we didn't talk about this when it came out is that the, that report that came out by the UK government being like, the UK is not racist or like, there's no systemic racism here. And you're like, "Ah, I think you colonized, you know, almost all of the known world at some point. And uh, it is awkward that you're like, just kidding. There's no vestiges of systemic racism. Um, But it's good to see that there are activists obviously pushing back on that, people challenging that notion, and also just not letting the government gaslight them. Like, I think that is important. And we did not talk about Tim Scott and his comments. We'll leave that for another episode. But it is always interesting when people highlight all the racist things that have happened to them and then end it with, but the country's not racist. And you're like, okay. Okay, my news is about Section 8. So in Iowa, they just passed a law and the governor just signed it that gives landlords the right to deny housing uh, to anybody on Section 8, which is government assistance. 
And this is bad for a host of reasons. It's interesting, in the past year, in 2020, you have just seen this assault on poor people, like criminalizing poverty. And you think about the whole point of Section 8 was that we would allow people to have access to homes. Like that was like why Section 8 came up is that we would create vouchers so that people who were in lower income brackets could pay rent, they could have sustainable housing. And you look at Iowa of all places, not necessarily the place that I would have imagined would be a front runner in denying Section 8 housing to people. But the disparities are real. Black people are about 4% of the population, but about almost 30% of voucher holders in Iowa. And almost all of the things that we think about with housing issues, black people, poor people will always be hit the worst or the hardest. Now, I am heartened that um, Representative Fudge is now the Secretary of HUD, and I hope that she sues the pants off of Iowa. I hope that she has like the full power that we have never even seen in the enforcement of the Fair Housing Act so that Iowa can't get away with this. And I hope that people sue and tie them up in court for a long time that like this just is this is not only bad policy, but it's such explicitly racist policy. Uh, in Iowa. And I'm, I didn't, you know, I need to spend more time researching what's going on in Iowa, because if they're doing this, they're probably doing a lot of other stuff that like, we didn't even know. I went and looked at the governor's uh, website, which talks about her platform. And on her platform, she says that housing is the single most significant opportunity for rapid economic recovery for families and communities in Iowa. She talks about having a comprehensive housing plan with innovative solutions to bolster supply and provide financial assistance. And so you're like, yeah, okay, come on, let's get this housing on, right? And then you're like, wait a minute, but you're killing Section 8 or you're saying your people don't have to take Section 8 vouchers. And what I thought was really interesting is the justification for even the original bill, which came out in 2016, was to reduce the concentration the city was seeing in certain areas by race and income, and over-concentration of persons residing in certain neighborhoods who are of a certain race or income. Well, if only 4% of the population is black in Iowa, right? Like, then it's an over-concentration of white people, too. And what are we doing about that, right? Nothing. But this over-concentration of black people living in certain neighborhoods is a problem. How can you on the one hand say that housing is a priority and that you have innovative solutions and then on the other hand say that you are going to not mandate that your people take Section 8 vouchers? I'm with you, DeRay. I hope, I mean, this is why we have checks and balances in our in our governmental systems. I also hope that HUD sues the pants off of them. And look, sometimes you just gotta take it to the streets in this case, to courts. Let's go to the courts with this because this is unconstitutional. Okay, maybe it's not unconstitutional. I'm not a lawyer, but it ain't right is what it is. How about that? Kim Reynolds has been getting on my nerves since she was elected. She is up for re-election in 2022. I don't know what anyone's chance are for giving her a run for her money, but I'm sure gonna take myself back to Iowa where I know well from all my many times being there during Iowa caucus to do whatever I can. So yeah, I, I just, I, this really, this one really broke my heart to see that, but you know, to both of y'all's points, I'm sure that there, there's a plan in place to, um, to challenge her on this one. 
And we should, um, now that you say that, we should think about who's running against her so we can help them out in any way possible because this ain't it. Can I give one little update on a previous uh, article that we reported on? This is um, about the return of Bruce's Beach in Los Angeles. And last Tuesday, the California Senate Bill 796 was passed with strong bipartisan uh, support, which would actually allow... Uh, the county of Los Angeles to return the beachfront property known as Bruce's Beach to the descendants of Willa and Charles Bruce, from whom it was wrongfully taken in 1929. Woot woot! Come on, y'all. That's some good news. Woot 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 woot. So congratulations to the Bruce family and and y'all hosting this summer's cookout. Exactly. We all coming. We all coming to the cookout <laughs> and we're all on Bruce's Beach. <laughs> hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. The Sensing Project is a D.C.-based research and advocacy center working to dramatically reduce the use of incarceration in the U.S. and to address racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Today, I'm talking to Ashley Nellis, a senior research analyst with The Sensing Project, about what comes next with the organization and what they learned. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People. Thank you for having me. So we first met because I had these random questions about sentencing and three strikes laws, and then I got in touch with you because you are a lead over there at the Sensing Project. Can you talk about how did you start in your work? Like, how did you even get to sentencing? Like, how did that become a thing that you were focused on? And then help us understand where the work is today. I started criminal justice work with an undergraduate degree in Texas. And as you might be aware, Texas has a very complicated relationship with the criminal justice system, with an enormous amount of people who enter into the system, particularly prisons. And I started my work as a volunteer with the ACLU there in Austin, Texas. And I got off the ground really, you know, doing advocacy work. And my degree, even though most of the people in my cohort were entering policing, usually or correctional uh, officer work, I just felt a real call to get into advocacy and to try to help. And so I continued on with my graduate degree in criminal justice and my Ph.D. and, you know, developed the skills necessary to understand the data and to get the um, expertise in really having a deep understanding of the criminal justice system. So I still, even though I moved into the academic world to get that training, felt like ultimately I was going to end up in advocacy. So as soon as I finished, I looked out to places like the Sentencing Project, where fortunately I landed in 2008, and I've been there ever since. And our focus at the Sentencing Project is really on the impact of the policies of the 80s, particularly, and the 90s, uh, even more so, that accelerated this mass incarceration structure that we now have, and the disproportionate impact it's had on people of color, particularly African Americans. Um, And so my area of focus is on people who are serving long and life sentences, What is a long sentence and what is a life sentence? Because life is really just a number of years, right? So there's three different categories of life sentences that we include. One is people who are serving life with no chance for parole. They call this life without the possibility of parole or natural life. 
life without release. It sort of depends on the state. There's about 55,000 of those around the U.S. Uh, and then there's life with the possibility of parole. And that's another 100,000 or so people. Um, and that is people who have the opportunity for a parole at some point. They can go before a parole board. It's not guaranteed that they'll be released. Most are eventually. Um, but typically, they aren't reviewed for that release until 25 years or so. So we hear the phrase 25 to life quite a bit, and that's why. Uh, and then there's a third category called virtual lifers, and that amounts to people who are serving 50 years or more before they go before parole. So that's someone who we could expect will not outlive that sentence, and they will die in prison. So altogether, all three of those categories create a population of our prison that is 200,000, over 200,000 people now. Uh, one in seven people in prison has a life sentence. You just wrote a piece called No End in Sight, America's Enduring Reliance on Life Imprisonment. Now, can, let's talk about it a little bit. For most people, they would say that you had to do something really bad to get a life sentence. So, like, this must be murder, violent crime. And there are some people who, like, shouldn't be around communities. So, like, if you kill anybody, kill five people, a mass shooting then like a life sentence probably makes sense. Like you shouldn't be around people in community. What do you say to those people? Well, to those um, who say that at the time of your crime, when you cause violent harm to one person or many people, that you are stuck as that person and, and not able to change who you are. I would push back on that and say that while it's possible, and there are people who have um, serious uh, sociopathic uh, problems that will probably never get out of prison, and I would not want them to get out necessarily. I do believe that an ethical and morally high society takes a look at those people every so often to see if there has been change. The vast majority of people who are serving life sentences are not mass murderers. They are not sociopathic killers. Uh, they are not the kinds of people that we hear about in the media as, you know, going on a killing rampage. The majority of people who are serving life sentences are there for a violent crime, no question. About half of them are there for a murder. And that is a very broad way of describing the lifer population. The reason I say that is that our policies have expanded who can be convicted under a homicide crime so much that uh, felony murder, um, accessories to a crime, and people who were there for an underlying felony but did not commit a murder or know that a murder was going to happen can now get sentenced to life sentences as if they were the triggerman. And that's a policy decision that has, you know, caused the jump in number of people serving life, particularly life without parole, which has increased 66 percent since 2004. Okay, let's just go over the numbers now. I have a lot of other questions, but I'm curious and fascinated by the life sentence population. I think about, I look at the chart that's on page 14 of the, the piece you put out, and it is Utah, Nevada, and Alaska are the top three, if I'm reading this correct. And that is not at all what I had anticipated. Why, what is going on there? For that chart, 
were describing all life sentences. And when we include all life sentences, we include every person who is sentenced to a, a range of years. And in Nevada and Utah, they have policies that allow for sentences of one to life, quite a few, and also five to life. It can be seen as misleading or a misrepresentation of where most of the lifers are. But in reality, at a time of sentencing, if a judge believes that a person can go to prison for the rest of their life or a year, according to that sentence, that person should expect that they're not coming out of prison uh, because the judge feels that it is appropriate, possibly, for them to stay in prison for the rest of their lives. So Utah and Nevada are states that allow this very broad range, mostly for sex offenses, that you know allow up to a life sentence. And it is interesting in Utah that they leave that subsequent decision of whether it's going to be a year or life uh, or something in between up to the parole board. So the parole board then becomes really the judge. And that, in our mind, is very problematic because really that's a different branch. And a person's sentence should be decided, you know, within reason by a judge, not by a parole board. Are the parole boards lenient? Are they, should you go from life without parole to life with parole? Is that helpful? Should we just lower the, the sentence cap? And then what, I know I'm asking a lot of questions. And then what do you say about victims groups? Because I can imagine that like, if somebody in my family is a victim of a, heinous crime that I don't, I would love to know where victims group stands on this. If we know. Uh, victims rights groups are, you know, a very powerful voice in the life uh, and, and in all, in all sentencing. Um, and there has been a real movement um, to keep that voice very strong um, in sentencing and also in parole. Uh, in our view, the victim's rights community has mostly been sort of taken advantage of by prosecutors who are looking to secure a conviction and that they know that using a victim to do that will um, help them both in getting that conviction and potentially getting them elevated in their own career. There are victims who feel that somebody should go away for the rest of their life you know, and and be punished harshly. There are also victims and the majority of victims who feel that the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system is not taking care of them at all. Uh, It's taking care only of putting the person away for the rest of their life. And it doesn't provide the closure that they were hoping to attain. As far as parole boards, the parole boards are problematic. They're uh, politically intertwined um, with the governor, and usually their members are confirmed by the Senate. And they are often not up to speed on what we know about the risk involved in somebody who is, you know, coming up for parole who had a violent crime in their past. The, you know, vast majority of research shows that after a certain period of time, roughly around 10 to 20 years, a person who has committed violence in the past is very unlikely to commit it in the future. In fact, in the range of less than 5% would somebody commit another murder after having committed an initial murder. So it's a very low 
recidivism rate. But a lot of the discussion at parole board hearings is around that original crime of conviction. Um, and so if you are somebody who has murder as your original crime of conviction, it's kind of game over uh, because you can't get out of that, even though you've served maybe 10, 20, 30 years for that crime. Um, and there's nothing you can do to undo the fact that that was your crime. Um, so really, parole boards really need to be uh, restructured and reoriented, focusing on what the person has done to demonstrate that they're ready to be uh, you know, a strong and participating and crime-free member of society. What are misconceptions about about the way we think about a life without parole and life sentences? I think most people assume that the criminal legal system is accurate and that if somebody is serving a life sentence, then they must have been a truly horrible person and they must have been incorrigible and not deserving of a second look that uh, the criminal legal system you know, has pinpointed the right people and we know from looking at lower level offenses that this is not true. It's easier, I think, for us as a society to accept that. You know, we know the system gets it wrong a lot. But when it comes to these more serious offenses, uh, there's just more reliance, you know, just out of a, a, you know, a, a very understandable fear of letting somebody out who might commit a new crime. And that does happen, and that will continue to happen um, from time to time. But those incidents are rare, even though they're severe, they're rare. And we shouldn't be hanging our policies on events that are rare and then throwing tens of thousands of people behind bars for the rest of their lives just to be on the safe side. And so I think one of the places where we get it wrong is to think that there's no reason to look at people a second time and see, number one, did we get it right the first time? Uh, conviction review boards are getting more popular, thankfully. Sentencing review boards are getting more popular, uh, thankfully, because there is this sort of acceptance now in the progressive prosecutor movement, however small and modest it is, that we do make mistakes. We have to um, allow for that. It's easy to accept life imprisonment in the United States as a regular thing because we don't ever see these prisoners again. We lock them up and throw away the key. Prisons are always, you know, very distant. If we want to, we never have to look at a prison. Um, we never have to go inside a prison. We never have to look at that community of people that we have discarded. And 10,000 of them uh, were under the age of 18 when they committed their crime, which is, you know, not an insignificant number. Many of them were uh, victims of trauma, serious and ongoing trauma, uh, before they became victimizers. And that is never accounted for. You know, it should be, I believe. You know, I, I think we can look at both. We can be accountable and also merciful. Didn't the Supreme Court rule that we could no longer put kids in life without parole? That's right. So the Supreme Court ruled that we can't give juveniles, people under 18, life without parole in states where it's a mandatory life without parole sentence. So that 
has freed up the sentences of about 2,000 people. Not all of them have gotten their relief yet, but that is about 2,000 sentences. There used to be 12,000 juveniles serving life sentences with about 2,500 of them serving what we call JLWAP. And now um, there are fewer than that, but the vast majority of the juvenile lifers have life with the possibility of parole, even though that parole possibility might be decades away. Uh, In Tennessee, for instance, the first time you can go before a parole board and a life with parole sentence is after 51 years. And that's no matter how old you were when you got there. Who's doing this right? Is there a state that really is cutting back on the life without parole population? And how do you do it? Like, how if there's somebody doing this right, how did they do it? So there are states that are doing it right in some ways, but unfortunately, they're doing it wrong in other ways at the same time. So I'll give you a couple of uh, one example in particular. So New York is a state that has uh, declined its lifer population, life with the possibility of parole. Um, considerably over the last 10 years or so. But at the same time that it has done this, it has also increased its life without the possibility of parole sentence. Not nearly to the level of its life with the possibility of parole, but, you know, it's had a tremendous drop in life with. And that's important for them because that's a state that is very heavily reliant on life with the possibility of parole. And parole is it has historically been very difficult to come by um, in that state. But sort of under the radar, life without parole uh, has started to rise in that state. You know, I can't really say there is a state that is doing it right all over. In terms of the numbers, the states that are doing it right in terms of being willing to look are California, for instance, which has picked away at Um, certain parts of its life or population by, for instance, repealing the three strikes law that caused a lot of people to go away for life and dealing with its felony murder law, extending juvenile status up to age 24. Um, These are all, you know, very uh, promising uh, actions. And then there are other states, you know, that are doing very little so that, you know, for instance, in Florida, is a state that um, has had a decline in in life with the possibility of parole, but that's mostly because they're dying. And it has had a tremendous increase in life without the possibility of parole. So, you know, the states that, you know, without a closer look, it's difficult to say why their numbers are changing, but states that have a decline in life with the possibility of parole, it's possible that that is because they are sentencing fewer people. And that, of course, is encouraged. Uh, It's also possible that those numbers are going down because uh, people are dying waiting for their parole. Got it. That makes sense. Who's the biggest lobby against this work? Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say lobby, but I would say obstacle. There's a few, actually. So some of it is the mindset of the criminal justice reform community. The criminal justice reforms that have been advanced in the last 10 years, let's say, since we started this movement of reform. And I, in my mind, I always put it at sort of when we first passed the Second Chance Act in 2008, 2009, so a little over 10 years, that there have been very positive reforms, but they have mostly been at the lower level, people who are serving short terms of imprisonment, 
people who have been apprehended or convicted of drug offenses, removing cash bail. Uh, these are all very necessary reforms. So I don't mean to suggest that they're not. Oftentimes, though, they come at the expense of reforms for the deeper end sentences. And sometimes the encouragement of harsher punishment by policymakers who maybe endorse a law. And, and we've seen this on the left and the right that endorse a law and say, I'm just so glad we're passing this law, and this will make sure that we're super harsh, we're especially harsh on people who really deserve it. But the reality is we are already very harsh on everybody. To say we're going to trade, you know, this policy reform for that really misses the point that we need policy reforms across the board. And 50% of the people in prison are there for a violent crime. So, you know, releasing all the marijuana offenders tomorrow is potentially a wonderful idea, but it's not going to do anything about mass incarceration. It's not going to end mass incarceration. You know, so we have to all sort of work together so that we can get, you know, to a reasonable prison population that is reflective of those who are truly, you know, a danger to society today. And we have a ways to go for that. So that, so I would say the criminal justice reform community can be a challenge. Um, it's also a challenge, but I think something that's really making some headway that um, death penalty abolitionists tend to lean on and encourage life sentences as the quote-unquote humane alternative. They are, you know, sort of present life without parole as the only alternative in, when they do that, when that's done, because it is more humane, of course, to let somebody live than to kill them. But we could go so much further. We are, I mean, America, after all, we have some of the most draconian criminal sentences and penalties in the world. We have 83% of the world's population of LWAP prisoners. And, you know, in other countries, and I visited with advocates and policymakers in other countries, and they always want to know why the U.S. thinks that it should be sending people, so many people, away for the rest of their lives and never taking another look at them. Uh, death penalty abolitionists, I think, can be another uh, challenge to overcome in sort of humanizing the people who are serving life sentences. And then, you know, I think we have to go farther than we have gone in the victories, which have been really tremendous um, in the juvenile arena. Juveniles, as I say, are about 10,000 of the life or population, but there are over 200,000 people serving life. So we want to be careful not to continually beat that drum of children are different, children are different, because in many ways, they're not too different in terms of those mitigating factors than adults. Many, many of the adults also experienced severe trauma and neglect as youth before they committed their crimes. So I would say I would I, I could think of other obstacles, but those are three that come to mind. So let's talk about the solutions. I know that you're pushing for a 20-year cap. Do you think that we could actually get there? What does that even mean? The first order of business is to eliminate life without the possibility of parole. That is a sentence that could easily be transferred into life with the possibility of parole if we were to just abolish it wholesale across the board. And we recommend that. Do it through litigation, do it through legislation, you know, do it through um, sentencing reforms at the back end. 
and just stop using the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. But then the vast majority of lifers have life with parole, and most of those lifers uh, don't get to go before a parole board before they get to 20 years. Um, And so in other countries, and using other countries as a model, we adopt the position that all sentences should be served no more than 20 years with the presumptive release at 20 years and having a first look at around 10 to 15 years, that would result in a recalibration of the entire criminal system uh, that would put us on par for ending mass incarceration quickly, which is what we want to do. We don't want to wait 65 years, as a colleague of mine says, at this rate of reform, it would take us 65 years to get back just to 1980. So we want to get there quickly for a range of reasons. And so that's why we offer this bold proposal. You know, there will always be negotiation. You know, we work with policymakers every day, and we know that no policymaker is going to just look at our proposal and say, you know, sounds good, let's go with it. There will always be carve-outs. There will always be exemptions. We even advocate for exemptions in the case of people who uh, continue to present uh, threats to public safety. Let's say, for example, a person who has served 20 years, they go before the parole board, they've participated in no programming, they've refused programming, and they say, when I leave here, I'm going to kill people. Obviously, at 20 years, we would not recommend that that person go out. Uh, we would recommend that there be continued incarceration through probably civil confinement, um, but that that too would have the full range of due process rights and be, you know, have a careful look very regularly. So it's a lot to take in that we would have prison sentences capped at 20 years, except that we are starting to look at other countries. You know, even state departments of corrections have gone to Norway and and other places to see how it's being done elsewhere. So I don't think it's inconceivable that we could get there. I don't think we're going to get there next year or even maybe in the next five years. Um, But I think we can start piecemeal. Um, And so that's a solution that, you know, I think we should be working toward. It's so easy because the criminal justice system is so broken in so many places just to sort of harp on that. And how are we ever going to, you know, fix all this? So I think it is wise to look at what would work, you know, what's something we could be moving toward. And those are two ideas that we advocate strongly for in our lifer campaign. Like, so there are people who are like, okay, got it. We shouldn't be putting people in life sentences without parole. Parole boards aren't the thing right now. Like, what can people do? Become more educated about uh, crime and not uh, believe so quickly that what we hear in the media is the reality when it comes to criminal justice, because with crime in particular, you know, it's just not news to say people didn't commit crime in this particular neighborhood where they used to. It's always going to focus on where the problems are. And that can distort our view of crime. I mean, right now we're having a rise in violent crime. I think it's safe to say. And that is unfortunate. I think we're still in the period where it could be a statistical uh, blip, but I don't know. It's been a couple of years now. But the fact is that before that, for many years, uh, crime has been going down steadily uh, for the last 25 years. But if you ask the public in general, 
whether crime is going up or down. Most people think it's been going up all this time. So there's a real, you know, need for the public to be more educated about what is going on with crime. Um, it's also, you know, important, I think, to get involved at a community level with, you know, organizations and activists that are doing, um, doing work on reforming the criminal legal system across the board, but in particular, um, violence interruption and community violence intervention uh, work. Um, you know, there is effective programming out there. There are effective violence intervention programs that are usually being led by people who previously were convicted of violence. You know, they work together with law enforcement. I think it's also helpful if, you know, law enforcement changes its culture. You know, a lot of people that uh, live in high violence, um, low-income communities have very dysfunctional relationships with the police because of the police's presence in there in the past has not been helpful. And so that relationship, you know, the police aren't a resource to people who really need them because they're afraid of of retaliation. They're afraid they won't get protected. And that is work for the police to do, to get more trust from the community uh, so that they can be relied on when, when real violence is happening and be helpful to communities that really need it. Cool. Well, keep me posted, and we can see you a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Oh, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I uh, will talk with you all soon. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, and we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe.